0: You're listening to the Design for Disaster radio podcast with Josh Cormier. Getting to know nuclear fission for power generation. In the nuclear industry, the two most common types of reactors are the pressurized water reactor and the boiling water reactor referred to as a PWR and BWR, respectively. Both work by converting liquid water to steam, which is then sent through a turbine, turning the turbine. The turbine then converts that energy into electricity via a generator. The PWR contains a primary circuit of feed water that is kept at a very high pressure in order to prevent boiling, and the heat is transferred via a heat exchanger, known as a steam generator, into a lower pressure secondary system that is connected to the steam turbine. Therefore, in a PWR, only the primary system is radioactive. The advantages of a PWR are the requirement for less overall shielding because the secondary system does not require shielding and the reactor can be much smaller because of its energy density. Conversely, the BWRs also operate at an elevated pressure of around 900 PSI, which is only about half the pressure of a PWR. In a BWR, there is no secondary system. As opposed to the PWR, where the high pressure prevents boiling, the feed water that is circulated around the uranium oxide core is allowed to boil. This steam is then channeled to the steam turbine and cooled by water passing through pipes and the condenser afterward. The system water is then pumped back into the core where it is then heated until steam is generated. With a BWR, more components, like the steam turbine, are radioactive and thus require extra shielding. A nuclear reactor simply heats up the surrounding water, making it fundamentally no more complex of an idea than a 19th century steam engine being heated by a coal-fired furnace. However, controlling the source of the energy is much more complicated. Whereas an operator can secure a steam engine by extinguishing the fire, a nuclear reaction doesn't end so readily. To understand a nuclear reaction, let's imagine a cluster of balls tightly bound together by a great amount of some binding energy. A free ball hurling through space with great energy because of its mass and velocity slams into this tightly bound cluster of balls, dispersing them, like a cue ball hitting a cluster of pool balls. When the cluster of balls breaks up, it separates into smaller clusters of balls, more individual balls, and releases the energy that was binding that once held these things together. The now dispersed parts of the cluster continue moving on with great energy. The individual balls that have moved on create the same reaction with neighboring clusters of balls, but not every individual ball will result in reaction with a neighboring cluster. Therefore there must be a great enough number of clusters and individual balls to sustain the chain reaction, else it will die off after some time. Likewise, if we have too many individual balls zinging around, we would have an ever-increasing frequency of reactions that must be controlled. The cluster of balls is a metaphor for an atom. Atoms are simply tightly bound clusters of protons and neutrons. The individual balls represent neutrons. The breaking apart of an atom into smaller parts is called fission. Not all atoms readily fission. A certain level of instability is required where the atoms are on the brink of falling apart already. These unstable atoms are more easily found among the super heavy isotopes as super heavy atoms in the upper range of the periodic table of elements. For example, Atomic isotopes like uranium-235 and plutonium-239 are quite unstable and ready to fission when slammed into by a thermal, low-energy neutron. As a side note, an isotope is simply ty- one type of a uh, particular atom. You can have more than one isotope of an atom, and the isotope is determined by the number of neutrons, whereas the atom itself is defined by the number of protons. Just as some elements like uranium or plutonium are readily fissioned from thermal neutrons, Other elements will simply absorb them without resulting in fission. Because of this, we can use elements like silver and boron in the form of control rods to absorb neutrons and thereby control the population of the neutrons in a reactor in order to maintain a balanced reactor that is neither increasing or decreasing in the number of fissions per generation. This is known as a critical reactor. If the reactor is increasing the number of fissions by each generation, we can insert more control rods made of an atom that readily absorb neutrons without becoming unstable in order to limit this. Likewise, we can remove control rods in order to increase the number of fissions per generation. When it is time to shut down a reactor, we will insert all of the control rods in order to create a subcritical reactor, one in which each generation of fissions is less than the previously, previous ultimately resulting in the least amount of fissions possible and therefore a shutdown reactor. So a neutron is slammed into an unstable atom, breaking apart, and slamming into other atoms resulting in a chain reaction of more unstable atoms that then go on to do the same. Controlling the population of neutrons in the reactor allows the operator to control the number of fissions. This process creates heat by warming up the water. When the atomic particles like neutrons, alphas, and betas rip through the feed water surrounding the core, they impart energy that heats up the water. The atoms also release gamma radiation which are very very high energy photons that also heat the water. It is important to remove excess heat from the water so that core temperature and therefore pressure does not exceed the safe limits of its design. In addition to the intentional fission I just described, an atom may also decay on its own without a collision. Atoms naturally seek out a stable state and if they are not stable they will decay in order to reach this state. The half-life of an atom can vary astronomically. For example, helium-5 has a half-life of 760 times 10 to the negative 24th seconds, while bismuth-209 has a half-life that is over a billion times longer than the estimated age of the universe. Uranium-235, a common reactor fuel, has a half-life of about 704.2 million years. All this being said, an isotope may decay at any time. When particles are emitted during decay, energy is released into the surrounding environment causing heat and or material damage just as in an intentional fission. Decay, decay heat is an important decay heat is important in the story of Fukushima 1 because it was the ener- this energy that was the problem following the earthquake and subsequent tsunami. Even after a reactor is shut down, the core must be cooled on account of decay heat. The amount of decay heat is dependent on the previous power level at which the reactor was operating and the amount of time it was operating, and decreases exponentially over time. On average, a reactor operating at full power will produce decay heat equivalent to 7% of the power of the reactor immediately after shutdown. One hour later, the decay heat will be equivalent to 2% power, and then down to 1% after one day. Small amounts of decay heat may linger for months after shutdown. If the reactor does not continue to be cooled after the shutdown, the core may melt down. Fukushima 1 is covered in another podcast. I also talk about how attempting to control the um, neutron population contributed to the Chernobyl disaster in another podcast. Thank you for listening, and if you have any questions about engineering, design, or disasters, please contact me at my Twitter account, at DFDJosh.